Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Everyone's heard of Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, and everyone listening to this show has heard of Joshua Chamberlain and Braxton Bragg. But few of us, including me, have heard much of Timothy Webster until now, because Tim Webster was so good at what he did. We'll hear just what that was from Corey Recco, author of A Spy for the Union, The Life and Execution of Timothy Webster, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio on a lovely Wednesday evening in April of 2014. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you, as always, from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University, where students are milling around outside. It's they're possibly going to night classes or off to the library or waiting for the bus. But I'm not speaking for their institution, East Carolina, nor will our guest speak for anything but himself. All legal disclaimers are out of the way, even though uh, East Carolina does get a certain amount of publicity out of the show. I, my face appeared apparently on a recent commercial for the university uh, in a rapid-fire montage of images. Mine is up for a split second, and people have been telling me they've seen it. I've seen it once, uh, so I think it was not just a fever dream that it really did happen, because others say they've seen it too. But we're here to talk uh, about the Civil War tonight. First, get the business announcements out of the way. Uh, we remain the number one show on Voice America uh, internet radio for several months now. Very happy to learn that and hope uh, you will continue listening and downloading old shows and telling your friends about it. It's not uh, something that benefits me financially directly, so it's just 
I enjoy knowing that uh, someone's listening and getting benefit out of this. And it's always good when you send me your ideas for who ought to be on the show next. That's always helpful and uh, always welcome. Last week, uh, well, this past week, there was, of course, the big sports events, uh, the, the big sporting event of the week that everybody paid attention to Monday night. Um, there was some kind of basketball game, but I'm speaking, of course, of J.H. Rose High School girls soccer uh, competing against Newburn High School girls soccer team on Monday evening, and Rose winning that game by a final score of one to nothing. This marks the first time in 21 years that Rose girls have beaten Newburn in soccer. Uh, it, it, the games are competitive the last two years, but it's been a long stretch of endless humiliation, and the look of astonishment on the faces of the parents and even the team of the Newborn girls as they trudged off the field afterward uh, was worth all those long drives to away games and practices over the years. It was very satisfying, and uh, I think the team liked it as much as the parents did. Uh, for Rose, it was a great victory. So we'll keep you up to date on J.H. Rose girls soccer because I know everybody's interested, uh, as I am, and let you know how we do next week. Thursday, we play the number one team in the state, our crosstown rival, Conley. Eh, maybe I won't tell you about it. Depends how, how badly that goes. In the meantime, here on campus, uh, week after week, I tell you of the bizarre things that the administration comes up with. And this week, for a refreshing break, I will point out today is uh, today was the National History Day competition here at East Carolina. Uh, the University History Department sponsors the regional history day competition for the eastern portion of the state and we've gotten into it uh dr chad ross one of my colleagues has done an outstanding job expanding the program so that our eastern regional is now larger than the the state competition we have hundreds of students come and uh, for those who don't remember history day or are like me uh, older than the event itself it's basically like science fair, but for history. Students build exhibits or put on performances, or nowadays they make websites or prepare documentaries, and I judged the documentary category today. And it was absolutely fascinating to see what students can do with technology. Uh, they produce films that are, well, they're not films, literally, but uh, AV presentations. They are comparable in their appearance to the things that I did professionally with uh, hired cinematographers and voice talent and so on at the Lincoln Museum 20 years ago. Now, 17-year-olds can do this in their rooms at home with uh, a laptop and the right software and produce really quite fascinating pieces of work. The winning one that I judged was about uh, Doris Miller, the, the uh, a sailor who won the Navy Cross on the West Virginia at Pearl Harbor for volunteering to fight. He was a mess hall mate. And the student produced just a remarkable piece that uh, certainly deserved to win and, and ought to do well at the state and maybe the national level. So it's the kind of thing that restores one's faith in the educational system and the uh, grip that history has on the next generation to see all the pieces that were produced and exhibits made and so on. So, a uh, rare burst of uh, optimism here on the university history front. Further cause for optimism are the shows ahead. Next week, Robert Connor will talk with us about Union General Gordon Granger, 
On the 23rd, James Conroy will be with us. Uh, he's the author of Our One Common Country. It's about the Hampton Roads Peace Conference. On April 30th, Catherine Meyer and Nature's Civil War, Common Soldiers and the Environment in 1862, Virginia. In May, we've got uh, another set of excellent guests lined up. Linda Barnacle has a book on the Battle of Milliken's Bend. Bjorn Skapson from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago will be with us to talk about that institution and their author series and his own adventures leading programs at Shiloh. Uh, the 21st of May, Michael C.C. Adams has a book that I'm almost afraid to read called Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. And just from glancing at it, uh, it looks like no punches are going to be pulled. Memorial Day, probably no live show on the 28th, but in June 4th, Rachel Sheldon has a book on Washington politicians before the war, how northern and southern political leaders got along or didn't before the war broke out. It's called Washington Brotherhood. So lots of interesting things coming up. Uh, you can follow them all on www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things afloat. And you can donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Fund. Always welcome to receive your hard-earned dollars that I can then spend frivolously and recklessly on whatever. Uh, no decision yet on uh, Daughter Maria's College, uh, but that's where some of those dollars will go. Still another week or two before the deadline, and we'll keep you posted on that. Uh, she played in the game against New Bern, made a brilliant tackle in the waning minutes of the game on a breakaway and was called for a foul and a yellow card for a tactical foul, intentional foul. I'm still disbelieving as as all, not just parents, but good soccer, knowledgeable fans would say, that was a clean tackle, my friend. Uh, but enough of that. Uh, you can also purchase copies, once again, of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861 to 1862, now available in paperback from UNC Press. And if you go through the Amazon link on the Civil War Talk Radio website, Impediments of War, you help out the website. So please consider doing that. So business aside, let's talk about Timothy Webster, a spy for the Union, uh, a, a figure uh, who's been in the shadows because... That was his professional career. Uh, but now we have an author who's, who's brought him out. Uh, his name is Corey Recco. Mr. Recco, are you there? I am here. Yeah, uh, thanks for being on me. the show. Glad, oh, glad to have you, you here. Having... Uh, glad to be here. Well, tell us uh, a little bit uh, about yourself to, to start with. Uh, the, the back of the book says you've written articles for a variety of historical topics, uh, magazines, journals, websites. Uh, it, is the Civil War your your main topic of writing, or how did you come to be interested in this particular story? Well, I start, I start off um, writing, and my first book was published in 2007. It's called Murder on the White Sands, The Disappearance of Albert Henry Fountain, about a lawyer and his eight-year-old son who disappear near the White Sands in New Mexico. And... I had no plans of being a writer before that. It was the late 90s, and I had read about this case in a biography about Pat Garrett, the man who killed Billy the Kid. And I thought this was a fascinating murder case. So 
I wanted to read more about it, but what I kept finding was books that it's inclusion of books about someone else, a biography of someone involved in the case, or to have a chapter here or there about this case, but there was no book about the case. I started researching it and the, wrote a book out of it, which was very well received, published by University of North Texas Press. That, that's kind of how I began my work in writing as a historian. And from there, I've published other um, articles about Wild West history. And that kind of led me, I've always had an interest in the Civil War, but what led me to writing about the Civil War, and Tim Lutcher in particular, was for my first book, the Pinkertons were involved. And just while I started doing a little research on the agency, finally, for years I wanted to read more about Alan Pinkerton, but had never got around to it. While I started doing the backstory of the Pinkerton agency for that book, I read some of Alan Pinkerton's books, which are unfortunately highly fictitious, but at least that's what introduced me to Timothy Webster. One of the themes that runs through this book is uh, your uh, suspicion of Pinkerton's own accounts of his wartime activities. Uh, why why is Pinkerton's writing so uh, unreliable in your view? Um, I think he, he seemed interested in selling books, not just from his um, account of the Civil War, but from all of his books there. I mean, you look at in some of the cases, and obviously some more interesting ones, do fo- seem to follow the facts exactly step for step. And there's other things which not only can't be verified, but a lot of times what is known is completely the opposite of what he's telling in his book. And whether it was, you know, he had ghostwriters, or I don't know if that's the case, but um, he obviously was concerned about telling a good story, and facts, you know, were secondary to that. So if, if they work, fine, but they're not necessary in, in his view. Interesting. So exactly. the... Uh, the the Pinkert, well, this whole story uh, I found fascinating. I I've typically would, I don't interview folks who've written Civil War fiction very often, as longtime listeners to the show are, are aware. Once in a while, we'll have a, you know somebody like Jeff Shara might might come on, but uh, typically there, there's not time because there's so much nonfiction being written uh, and. Likewise, I don't watch a lot of movies, and occasionally I will get uh, persuaded by my wife to watch something outside of my comfort zone on TV. And recently, uh, she's got me to watching the uh, the new Sherlock Holmes version uh, that I'm sure some of our listeners have, have watched, the English uh, modern versions of the Holmes tales, and they're quite fascinating. And so suddenly I'm absorbed in watching these detective stories and here I am reading your book and it is very much a detective story for, from the start. Uh, Webster himself is a detective. Uh, tell us a little bit about his background. Where was he from? How did he get into the detective business? Well, he was born in um, England. His family moved to the United States when he was around 10 years old. I mean, actually 8 years old now I think about it. And um, he was raised in Princeton, New Jersey. His father was a tinsmith and there's some family accounts that say that that's how what career he began in, but somewhere along the way he decided to go into law enforcement. We don't know why. Um, there's not because he wasn't famous in his own time. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of records kept about Timothy Webster, and for the Pinkerton records, most of them from Webster's time were destroyed in the 
Great Chicago Fire of 1871. But we do know that Webster, before 1850, joined the New York Police Force, which was in its infancy in what is now the modern New York Police Department. At the time that he joined, it was that was the what they were forming was a new police force to take the place of the old one to have a force that could adequately cover the large and growing metropolis. Um, some well, in 1850. I'll go ahead. I, I want to ask about the the police. What what was the police department like in in the early 1850s? The early 1850s, um, well, they weren't armed except with clubs. They 1853 was the first time they got uniforms, so they were only even identified by their badge. At that time, it was just about getting more officers, and they were reorganizing to look more like London's police department, which worked with success because what they had before just wasn't working. There was a lot of crime in New York City. So so the model at that time is is the London police force. There's an irony there because, as you point out, one of the currents in American politics at that time was was nativism, anti-foreign spirit, yeah. and that includes uh, uh, Timothy Webster gets uh, very much involved in that. Uh, we're going to take a short break and come back and find out how uh, the police force that's trying to emulate the London force almost gets uh, eliminated because it's too English, but. We'll take a break first. We'll come back and talk more. Tonight, our guest is Corey Recco, author of A Spy for the Union, The Life and Execution of Timothy Webster. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Corey Recco. He's the author of A Spy for the Union, The Life and Execution of Timothy Webster. We were talking about Webster's background in our first segment. Uh, born in England, comes to the United States as a child, joins the New York City police force as it was really just getting started in its modern form, early 1850s, uh, trying to model itself after London's police force. Uh, but, Corey, you, in the book you talk about how uh, there was great suspicion of, of English, of all foreign things, including uh, English things. This almost cost Webster his job. Yeah, Eng- English, Irish, there, um, the know-nothing party and xenophobia was at its peak at that time. And um, there was an investigation started by the New York City alderman into the number of foreign-born officers in the police department. And they, they basically, and there was, um, they had asked the chief to make a report, and he said there were, it was roughly uh, just under 50% of the officers were foreign-born, according to his report. Their claim was that a little more than 50% were foreign-born, which doesn't seem like a, you know, the difference doesn't seem like a big deal, but it obviously was to at least one of the aldermen, um, John H. Briggs, who pursued over a year-long investigation into per- from perjury against the chief of police, and Webster was close to the chief, one of the people called multiple times to testify in this investigation, and he refused to cooperate every time he took the stand. Well, he was able to survive that professionally, and then he, he ends up working for Alan Pinkerton. Um, Pinkerton's job is also a new one. Uh, just as Sherlock Holmes invents the idea of the consulting detective, it looks like Pinkerton invents the idea of the private security force. Yeah, at least in America, he he did, and um, it was very much needed in America at the time because of laws that restricted the county sheriffs and local law enforcement from going beyond their county or state lines. The private detective wasn't bound by those restrictions, so a lot of times government entities would hire private detectives for real law enforcement work as opposed to a lot of the private detective work we see today, which you know, is some more frivolous stuff with divorce and things like that. Pinkerton so, so what, he was very needed in law enforcement at the time. What kind of crimes did uh, Webster get involved in uh, trying to prevent or trying to solve? Um, well, some of this, again, um, a lot of Pinkerton's records are destroyed, so we don't know a lot of what he did, but... Some of the crimes were one of his early jobs was tracking a forger named Jules Imbert, who was on his way to Canada. Webster even jumped from a moving train to keep up with the man. Um, as he moved up the agency, he um, led a force investigating grave robberies in a Chicago cemetery, and the grave robbers turned out to be medical students trying to um, who needed cadavers because laws at the time didn't let them get the cadavers they needed for research and study. And he also spent a couple of years living in Davenport, Iowa, trying to um, find those behind an attempt to burn down the Rock Island Bridge, which was the first bridge across Mississippi. And there was a great battle 
over that because of steamboat interests who thought they would be hurt by railroad bridges, um, trains being able to cross the Mississippi and go so easily from east to west. That's the same bridge that uh, the steamboat Effie Afton ran into, isn't it? That is, yes, that is the one. And, and Abraham Lincoln, as a, a railroad lawyer, had a, an important case uh, with the dealing with that so uh yeah thing, things tie together one of the things that always right. fascinates me about the civil war world is how much smaller it was uh, 30 million is a lot of people in america but um one-tenth the size of today's country so you have all these folks who do things in the 1850s and then they come back and they encounter each yeah. other again in the civil war so here's webster dealing with bridge burning and abraham lincoln was dealing with the same bridge from a legal point of view right and, yeah uh, it was and webster being there was the result of, the, of those cases was for the people who wanted the bridge gone the cases against the bridge were taking too long so they they you know they tried another way to destroy the bridge I mean, it's uh, taken in their own hands and set it on fire and, and exactly uh, Wow. So, so then Lincoln, well, Lincoln's path uh, will cross with Webster's again shortly. Um, in fact, that's that's really where where the Civil War portion of the story begins. Uh, I would guess most listeners are r- roughly familiar with the outlines of the story of Lincoln's journey to Washington, uh, in which there there are rumors of an assassination plot. Uh, Tell us about that, and, and and give me your evaluation of the evidence. Uh, what 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 did Pinkerton learn? Uh, well, well, maybe give us the bare outlines of the story. Where was Lincoln going, and and what did Pinkerton tell him uh, to be aware of? Well, as um, Lincoln, it was well before he got to um, Washington D.C. Um, the railroad company started hearing about possible secessionist plots to destroy railroad bridges between Washington, D.C. and New York City, and they hired Pinkerton, who already had a firm relationship with the um, railroad companies for other work he'd done for them, to investigate these plots. When Pinkerton, who took also one of the case himself, got to Maryland, him and other operatives, including Webster, found plans, found groups and individuals who said they were planning to assassinate Lincoln as he came through Baltimore, because what his public itinerary laid out was that they would stop at one train at one end of Baltimore, he would be taken through town in a carriage where people could see him and then go take another train from there to Washington, D.C. And there were multiple groups of individuals planning an assassination attempt, hardly saying they planned an assassination attempt, unlike it at this time. And Webster yeah, well, mm-hmm. had joined one of the groups in, in Maryland undercover, and that's how he learned about it, but... Alan Pinkerton and other operatives also got the same information in Baltimore. In those days, there was no Union station in Baltimore where all the train lines came together, so right. anyone going through the town had to get off one train and ride through the streets of the city to the other side and get on, get in a different station, get in a different train. So there's your opportunity, and certainly there's motive for, for Southern sympathizers to perhaps want to attack the president, uh, but yeah. I guess I might. How how real do you think the threat was? Yeah, that is the that's the million dollar question that I know people have debated this, especially because Norman Judd, who had a personal grudge against Pinkerton for a time, was saying that there was never any plot and that Pinkerton made it up. Um, 
which I find hard to believe. If nothing else, you have people like Timothy Webster who would give his life for Alan Pinkerton. Would he do that if he knew Pinkerton would be a complete fraud? So I don't question the evidence they got, and also the reports that have survived seem to be not in the in the same written in the same voice. If that makes sense. There, Pinkerton had his way of writing, and not all reports are written as if Pinkerton had written them. But at the same time, these were just people talking. There was there's no smoking gun that they were necessarily going to act on these plans. At the same time, if you get that today and someone's playing and assassinating the president, you're going to take that very seriously. So I yeah, I guess it's not something they can they can gamble with very much. Exactly. We we don't know if they would have gone through it. I know. I mean, there are historians and people who think that you know this was just talk. These these weren't people who were going to follow through in this. They were angry at Lincoln. They were they were angry. You know for the Southern cause, basically. It was all talk, but they, with the case of the group that Webster joined, it was an armed group, and there was also, as you said, cross between town, there's so much opportunity to do something like that. All it takes is one of those people to have the guts to go through with what he's saying, and Lincoln's in danger, so. I think they did the right thing by taking precautions because of what they found, and I find it amazing, and it's just the time because we haven't had a, had a president assassinated yet, but amazing no, that they would let him go through Baltimore in the open like that, especially considering the hostility towards him at that time. But the the irony is that the success in getting Lincoln through safely uh, means that people mock Lincoln for doing this, for, for right. taking the precaution of traveling at night alone, or almost alone. And uh, Lincoln himself is so embarrassed by the press criticism and, and the implied criticism of his, his courage that he swears off any further precautions and, and that of course will have grim consequences four years later uh, and four years later we see how easy it is for a determined person to get close to the president and kill him which I think is more evidence why the, the threats in um, Baltimore needed to be taken seriously Later thing, on, which showed how easy it was to assassinate a president at the time. I was struck by a detail in here that when when Lincoln and, and Ward Lamon go in the car, uh, already in the car is a twenty seven or twenty eight year old detective named Kate Warren, and later uh, you talk about uh, Hattie and uh, senior moment forgetting her name. Uh, um, Hattie uh, Lewis, or Lott, if you go by Pinkerton's accounts. Right, who played Webster's wife uh, as a cover. Uh, so Pinkerton had women in this operation, and we don't yeah, hear he, much about them at all. He had women um, from from the beginning, and he found his female detective force, he found very useful, and Kate Warren was the um, head of the female detective force for Alan Pinkerton. I'm seeing uh, Hollywood here. I'm seeing uh, an opportunity, especially since so little is known about Kate Warren. All we have is, uh, you know, the name and, and her role. You've got a whole movie. Yeah. You can write any movie plot you want and uh, uh, put her in it and have it be pseudo-historical. Uh, you can make a lot of money off, and I will ask only 10% for coming up with the idea. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah, it's, it's the same with, again, 
the loss of the Pinkerton records, um, her and Hattie Lewis, I, mean, I would love to know more about. I know there's many people who have spent a lot of time trying to find out more about these women, and unfortunately, information just hasn't been found yet. So once Webster successfully gets Lincoln to Washington, uh, the things that go on there, again, I, I thought were, were you know, almost cinematic. Uh, the description of how uh, uh, Samson and DeVoe, two other operatives, are in in Washington, and they've uh, they've been hanging out with Confederates and you know playing the role of Confederate sympathizers and infiltrating these organizations. But they've been compromised, and Webster has to go in and warn them and get them out. Uh, it was like watching uh, an episode of, of a, a spy thriller. Yeah, but I mean, that's one of the things that attracted me to the Webster story was exact incidents like that. I mean, he was one. Of, he was one of the early spies, and he was was felt. I felt when I first heard about it, this is like something out of a movie. And that they're they're in this crowded hotel lobby, and he, uh, you know, just bumps up against them. Says, "I basically, I know who you are. You have to follow me, and, and uh, uh, we've got to get out." Uh, it it was it was quite exciting to read and and uh, uh, very dramatic. So Webster works. Uh, no, again, we don't know because the records aren't there. But he appears to be one of Pinkerton's top agents. Yeah, and, and judging from the reports, I say judging from the records that are there from reports, he was one of Webster's or Pinkerton's top agents as far as accuracy of reports and the detailed information he sent back. And what, what kind of work mission, did he do at, or early in the war then? What, what did Pinkerton assign Webster to do? Well, at first it was just um, going to the southern states at that time, cross through Kentucky and Tennessee to find out the general feeling towards the war. This was right at the beginning of the war, and Pinkerton had been hired by um, McClellan to head his secret service. McClellan's task at that time, what he thought one of his priorities was defending Cincinnati. So he wanted information from south of Cincinnati. So Webster's early work, which obviously turned out not to be that important because McClellan held the post for long, was going into places like Memphis and finding out about troop numbers and the general feeling towards the war at that time, what, what they could expect. Being a spy in that era is obviously different from today. On the one hand, you're being a spy in your own country. Uh, an American in Tennessee is not does not stand out by reason of dress or voice or appearance. Uh, everybody in Tennessee is an American, right? But you know, he, he was from the north. There, there's some difference, but. Uh, how prevalent did this come out in your research at all? How prevalent was this? Did both sides use large numbers of spies to do this kind of work? Um, yes, and um, a lot of amateur. And when I say obviously, everyone was kind of an amateur because there was no blueprint for spying at the time. But as, and there were women, especially for the South and Washington. There seemed to be a lot who just took on took on the role themselves. If they found information, they tried to find contacts. And if they were, you know, for this in the Southern cause to pass their information south, one of them was Rose Greenhow, a, a woman who Alan Pinkerton 
had arrested in Washington D.C. But there was no um, lo- there wasn't a lot of large uh, wasn't a large group of an official Secret Service like the work Pink- like the work Webster and Pinkerton did. So Webster is sent uh, into Tennessee, into Kentucky, to try to find out what's the threat right. towards Cincinnati. Figures that out, um, and he's working. So he's working for Pinkerton. Pinkerton is working for McClellan. Correct. Then McClellan becomes general of the uh, of the armies, and and now is. In Washington, does Pinkerton go with him to Washington, or was Pinkerton always in Washington? Pinkerton goes with him to Washington. Pinkerton was in Cincinnati at first and went with him to Washington. And, yeah, so now, and obviously that changed the objectives of Webster, moved to Baltimore and reconnected with his contacts that he met when he was investigating the plots against Lincoln. I'm, I'm currently reading a master's thesis uh, that a student has written about the situation in Baltimore right at the beginning of the war. And it's clear from from that student's research there was a lot of southern sympathy yes. in 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 Baltimore. A lot of people willing to uh, uh contribute to the Southern War effort. So it's clear that Webster has has people he needs to be infiltrating. Well we're gonna take another short break, come back and find out uh about Webster's final missions into the South. Uh, into Richmond. We'll do that in just a moment when we come back and talk more with Corey Recco, author of A Spy for the Union, The Life and Execution of Timothy Webster. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu 
www.ncc.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with our guest, Corey Recco, author of A Spy for the Union, The Life and Execution of Timothy Webster. We've been talking about the... Uh, the whole nature of spying in the Civil War, that it's a, a role being invented as they go along, uh, and Webster's working for Alan Pinkerton. It's an organized effort, not not self-invented necessarily, but uh, still nobody's quite sure how all this is supposed to work. Um, and Corey, one thing that I'm sure listeners are wondering is everyone uh, familiar with the Civil War knows that General George McClellan had a tendency to vastly overestimate the enemy forces that he was up against, uh, Lee's army on the peninsula in particular in 1862. And since Pinkerton was the head of McClellan's intelligence service, and Webster is one of Pinkerton's top agents, uh, the question people must wonder, I wondered as I was reading this, is to what extent is Timothy Webster to blame for Webster or for McClellan, so being so inaccurate in his estimate of Lee's strength. Um, I mean, I wouldn't place any of the blame on Timothy Webster for all the information that was coming back to Pinkerton from different spies and from the refugees they were interviewing in Washington D.C. Webster's reports were the most accurate of any of his operatives. The problem seems to be that. Um, Pinkerton and McClellan, who seemed to come up with this theory, was that no matter how many troops, refugees, and spies reported, they were going to miss some. So whatever number was given, with a four-time mathematical formula to multiply that by whatever, and kept up with much larger numbers for troops that they assumed were just weren't counted. That seems to be the big problem with the reports coming back to... Um, McClellan and his overestimation of troops. So, so it was Pinkerton padding the numbers initially to to make sure that he got everybody, and then McClellan doing the same thing. Well, Pinkerton padding the numbers, which McClellan um, comments in the report show knew that Pinkerton was padding the numbers, and then McClellan, yeah, sometimes he would report those numbers back to Lincoln. He'd pad them even more. Whether that was whether he thought that they were missing even more troops or just wanted to tell Lincoln there are more troops to justify his requesting more troops. We don't really know. It seems at least to an extent that McClellan did believe they had a lot more troops than they had because he even used some of Pinkerton's numbers back in letters to his wife, saying, you know, there's how many troops we face, this is what I'm up against. And so he did seem to believe those troops were there, at least from what we have, but that, you know, the, the problem does, didn't start with the spies. Webster and all the spies were reporting at least much more closely to accurate numbers, and then they just got inflated in Pinkerton's reports. And then there was the occasional mathematical error from Pinkerton that would make things even worse. Well, Webster certainly did uh, a fair amount of, of, of spying and investigating. You describe him going into Virginia, uh, playing the role of a... <coughs> uh, of a Southern sympathizer from Baltimore. He, he's won the confidence of the the Baltimore people, so he now is able to carry mail from Baltimore, the Confederate community in Baltimore, down to Virginia. 
and even go and distribute it to Maryland regiments to get passes into military camps uh, because he, he's so trustworthy to the rebels. And while he's there, he's noting everything he's seeing. Did he actually record this? Did, did he make notes while he was there and hide them? Did he just memorize everything? How did he bring this information back north? That is a good question. I, unfortunately, that's one of the you know, we do have, I think some of it was at least written down, because we do have some of his surviving reports from when he was in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. But we don't have his, the, all, all the reports we have from his time in Virginia were what Pinkerton wrote to McClellan from his reports. So whether he wrote those back up when he got there, or, I mean, there seems to be a whole lot of detail on that. As, especially as we was talking about that his reports were fairly accurate. I'm not sure how he remember all that detail. There's some stories that say he had reports in a cane or in the lining of his coat, but we don't really know. And unfortunately, that's not in the reports that survive. That's not mentioned. It's one of the, the challenges of writing history of something that yeah. was meant to be secret at the time. It's, it, exactly. There's not a lot of obvious evidence for it. So when he so he goes back and forth several times. Uh, in the spring of 1862, Pinkerton sends him south again uh, with Hattie Lewis to uh, uh, to once again, I guess, see what the numbers are there. Uh, tell us about yes. this this mission. Well, and it was obviously expected to be a short mission because it didn't because it didn't take Pinkerton long to panic. But on a previous trip south, Webster. It was winter, and Webster slept on the ground, um, cold winter night, and came down with rheumatism, which is kind of a generic term for any ailment that causes stiffening of the joints. Um, the reason Hattie Lewis went with him on the next mission was probably because he was still ailing from this rheumatism, and once he got to Richmond, it acted up, and he was confined to bed in the Monumental Hotel. Pinkerton panicked because he didn't heard from Webster and sent two other spies, John Scully and Price Lewis, south to find um, Webster and Lewis. Unfortunately, Pinkerton used spies that he'd also used in Washington, D.C. when they were searching suspected spies' homes. So when Price Lewis and John Scully found Timothy Webster at the Monumental Hotel, um, well, Webster had a visitor at the time, a detective for General Winder, who was there on a friendly visit with this detective, was Chase Morton, whose house was searched in Washington, D.C. by Price Lewis and John Scully because his parents were suspected of spying for the South. And Chase Morton obviously recognized the two men who had searched his home, told General Winder, and Lewis and Scully got arrested as suspected spies. And they were convicted and sentenced to hang. So, I mean, there's a lot. To, again, it's like a plot of a, a Hollywood story. The unfortunate coincidence that uh, Winder has this fellow with him who had been in Washington who knew these two guys uh, is bad luck enough. Yeah. But I, I was just fascinated by the moment when uh, they're trying to trying to get the two spies to admit that they're spies who are denying it. You know, we never right. saw you before. And they take them into a bar where the bartender is another Pinkerton operative. It's amazing how many people he had just in Richmond. I mean, yeah, that's... 
And that's the and, man on E.H. Stein who first reported their arrest to Alan Pinkerton. So you wonder, did they take him, did the Confederates suspect Stein, the bartender, as being another spy? So they figure, well, let's confront these spies with each other and see what, who, who cracks. Or was it just yeah. pure coincidence they happened to go there? Uh, you know, you can't tell, I guess. You, you can't tell, yeah. You know, Price Lewis thought that that was exactly what was happening, was they suspected Stein. And obviously Stein must have thought that because he left as soon as, as soon as that passed, he was out of Richmond and went back to Washington. So. Yeah, and again, they played it just right. They they don't they they act as though they've never seen each other. They don't give any clue that they know each other. Stein doesn't break. The two other spies don't give any indication of recognition. But Stein immediately thinks, if these two guys are in Confederate custody and they've yeah. been brought here in front of me, they must suspect me. And he's out on the next opportunity. It, it's it's just what you would want your, your CIA people to be that sharp right. to, to know what to do and, and to make the break at the right time. Uh, but Lewis and Scully are arrested and uh, but not Webster. He's still in his hotel room recovering. Right, and um, Price Lewis later said that he thought Webster was was suspected that um, but we again, we don't really know. They they didn't go after Webster this time. Maybe it's because he was so close to them and even had friendly relations with a lot of the people who were convict, you know, who were working to convict Lewis and Scully. I mean, General Winder, who was in charge of all this, had personal messages that he sent with Webster to his son, who was in the North. So it could be that they just trusted Webster so much and been so close to him that they couldn't imagine thought of him being a spy, or it's because he was bedridden and they didn't think he'd get anywhere anyway. But they didn't at this time make any moves to arrest Timothy Webster. So, so what? How did they finally get Webster? What happened? John Scully, who was a devout Catholic, asked to see a priest for confession. And this priest urged him to confess to General Winder and everything he knew, and Scully ended up doing that and told him that Webster and Hay Lewis were spies. And then, and there's some debate over whether Price Lewis completely followed suit. Price Lewis claimed later that he only admitted to being a spy, and that's what um, Lewis's biographer of a few years ago believes but Price Lewis, based on whatever he told General Winder, his sentence was commuted from execution to a few years in prison, and he was called to testify to Norris's court-martial. So the evidence seems to indicate that both Lewis and Scully um, gave up Webster to save themselves. So then Webster was arrested. And Webster was arrested. At this time, he had been moved to a friend's house uh, in Richmond, and him and Hattie Lewis were both arrested based on their whatever Scully and Lewis told General Winder. We, well, we know Scully told all, and yeah, like I say, it appears Lewis also gave them both up. Now, up to this point in the war, the Union had captured some Confederate spies and basically just sent them back south or, or held them in prison. Held, or held them for very short times, released them. In a lot of cases, these people continued spying after that. But Webster is a different case. Webster is a different case. I think this is a testament to his skill as a spy and his ability to get people to trust him and like him. He had befriended, again, as including up to General Winder. He had received passes to cross enemy lines. 
and go into camps from um, the Confederate Secretary of War. He had taken official documents from generals to a colonel. And the Confederates thought he was one of them, and I think it's this level of what they felt was betrayal. They felt like he was working for them. That led them to um, go through with the execution, the first spy executed in the war. So he's, he becomes the first spy executed in the war, but not the last. Not the last. After that, after that um, it's actually a year or two before the North started executing spies, although leading up to Webster's execution, that was originally one of the threats the North used to try to save him was, you know, hey, if you start... If you execute him, we're going to start executing your spies. But even after Webster's execution, it still took some time before that happened. But yeah, that, that, that did change things. Eventually, on both sides, spies were executed. So it, it really becomes a dangerous game. Uh, what was the reaction to, to the execution of Webster? The reaction um, in, in the North, again, was that this is what we should be now doing to Southern spies. It was, just, it was anger in the North. In the South, he was vilified. He was the enemy. And Richmond papers, they made him sound like a monster. They, um, and it was, it was interesting because he goes to the, there were two major papers in Richmond that carried news of the execution. And in most of the details, they're, they're, they're very, they're, they coincide exactly. But then they get to these weird, just trying to, paint this villainous portrait of Webster, and they both completely diverge in their accounts and just have, you know, different ways in which, you know, Webster, you know, calling out vengeance on his enemies or different ways to try to make him look bad, which might have been more believable had the papers lined up, their, got their stories straight, but he definitely was, he was the enemy in, in the South. There is no love for Timothy Webster. There's a interesting coda to this story. So Webster's executed, uh, and and of course his body's not about to be returned to the North at, at this point. Uh, but uh, how, how does it tell us the the, the very end, uh, Pinkerton's uh, response? Well, um, as he says, by wasn't allowed to be returned North. Pinkerton initially requested his. Every request regarding Webster's execution was denied. When before Webster was executed, he requested to be executed by firing squad. That was denied. Um, Alan Pinkerton requested to have his body brought forth. After that was denied. Alan Pinkerton wanted to have a special coffin sent down, and his body be kept in a vault till after the war. That was denied. Um, but finally, in 1871, Alan Pinkerton sent George Bangs, who had been with the agency since about the beginning and who knew Webster, to Richmond to find Webster's body. It took Bangs, I believe, about three days, and he found it in a pauper's grave in Richmond and it was sent back north, and eventually he was buried in Argyle, Illinois, which is where his family lived during the war. Well, it is a, a fascinating story with uh, all kinds of twists and uh, really an interesting book, uh, which listeners, you will want to get a copy of and, and read for yourself, A Spy for the Union, The Life and Execution of Timothy Webster. Uh, the author is Corey Recco. Corey, thanks very much for being on the show tonight. Um, thank you for having me. Oh, if anyone wants a signed copy, they could also go to my website at www.coreyrecco.com. Otherwise, it's also available on Amazon and there you go. Books, you know, everywhere else. <laughs> 
Listeners, you know where to find it, and you know where to find Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you, as always, for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 